This week was one of those odd weeks in life where we were all made to feel small. And if you live in this neighborhood, I think you've even felt some of the weight of that even more. Uh, Renee last Sunday was like, did you hear about the fire on Tuff Street? And over the course of this week, we found that five or six families in our community lost their homes to either fire, smoke, or water damage. Uh, people have asked me uh, from the church this week, uh, is our church going to give? What have we give, given to those families? What have we done? The quick answer to that, just for your uh, knowledge, because we always want to operate our finances as family in this church, is that yes, we are going to do something, but we're waiting to see what comes in for those families before we just give uh, sort of reactively. We want to find out where the gaps are and those families' needs and then step in here in another week or two. So just know that we're going to do that. And then Sunday afternoon at three, Carson texted me and said, well, I think Kobe Bryant just died in a uh, helicopter crash. And I, I, I literally pulled out my phone to check my iCal to see if it was April Fool's Day, and I didn't realize it. Like, he's so sage-like, and I just envisioned him sort of living to 80 and being like Bill Russell with a graying beard and giving all this life wisdom and basketball stories. And, and then there's this coronavirus thing, which is just weird. Uh, and I'm thankful that we have a nurse on staff at our church who runs our kids' ministry, and she's like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But man, it just seems to be growing every day, and we feel sort of immune, literally, to things like that, that 500 years ago would have wiped out half of a population of the world. Uh, but it does make us, on some level, feel pretty small. Uh, and then I, I thought about uh, the earthquake that happened in the middle, middle of the ocean in the Caribbean this last week, a huge earthquake. And then I just frankly thought about the, the celebration we had of Lana's wellness on Wednesday night. And all of those things, very personal, some very micro, some very macro, but all of it making us remember uh, we, in the grand scheme of things, are really small. And life is really, really fragile. And we are very human humans with expiration dates. The world is very fragile. The world is very unpredictable. It makes me think uh, about, we had this uh, family that, as a, when I was growing up, there was a family that lived two streets or two houses up from us, right? Now, next to us was Charlotte's house. And we would play baseball in the backyard. And, man, we could drive a home run into Charlotte's backyard. And we would jump the fence. The next yard was the Pruitts. Thank God we were not really good hitters because had the ball gone into the Pruitts' backyard, we were in trouble. The Pruitts had German Shepherds. And I remember uh, they had a chain link fence on the side where we could see, but on the front they had a big wooden fence. And they had a sign that sat on the fence, black sign, red letters, beware the dog. You know, we've all seen those. And when I see that, like, you... No, nothing more needs to be said. Like, there may, doesn't even have to be a dog back there. I'm good. I don't, I'm not curious. I don't need to go see what's back there. But wear the dog. Uh, because we, our pants legs can be very fragile. And, uh, and we don't want to be eaten alive by a dog. We would have been warned. And I think sometimes life ought to come with a similar sign that says, Beware the God. Beware the God, because life can be fragile, and it's like, man, you jump that fence into living, and we all have by nature of birth, and sometimes God can be unpredictable, and life and the world being broken can be unpredictable, and it's hard to know. Um, sometimes it's just hard to feel safe, and if we come casually before God, and we sort of box him in, and we forget that he is, in fact, like a lion, 
that uh, really dangerous things can happen. And we're going to look at a story today in the Bible of that. When, when has life made you feel very human or small or fragile? In those moments for you, did you blame or question God? Like, is there anything in you that questions God? Like, had there ever been a time where you sort of shook a fist at the heavens? God, what are you doing? Have you messed up on your plan here? I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be going through this. Those are perfectly natural. I was talking with Alicia this week and just saying, look, when we feel those questions for God, a third of the Psalms are the psalmists either being angry at God or questioning God. So to be human, there's permission. God is big enough to handle our questions and even our frustrations. But we're not to box God in and hold him at a difference, at a distance, or, or, uh, or just say, God, you get out of here. Uh, we have three choices. We can manage God, we can avoid God, or we can worship God. And those are the three choices for all of humanity. So 1 Samuel 6, we're going to look at a story of the life of King David. I had uh, slide warnings for you and totally left them. Sorry, it's actually in my basket, I think. So I'll walk you through uh, very gently on this if we can. Sorry about that, Scott. Now we're, we're looking at the life of King David, and this is a bizarre story. First time I ever heard it. Uh, it didn't sit well with me. As I've gotten older, I actually love this story more than I ever did before. We're going to kind of go through it almost uh, little sentence, thoughts, ideas, uh, one by one. So here we go. David uh, is now king. We saw last week he set up a new capital in Jerusalem to unify the people, geographically centered. And today he's going to take on a new adventure in the prime of his life and the beginning of his reign. Now David, 2 Samuel 6.1, again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. This is the Navy SEALs of the army. Uh, these are the, the, the rangers. These are the elite forces. He gets the 30,000 best warriors. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. We're going to stop there. A lot going on. The ark for about a generation has been sitting... Uh, outside of the control of the king or the people, the priests of God. And David is going to go down toward the coast, and he's going to bring it up to Jerusalem. He's not going north, but he's going to a higher altitude. So it says he's going to bring these things up, okay? And he's going to bring up the ark of God. Now, the ark, when I think of the ark, I just think Indiana Jones. Like, how many of you, that's your first thought, right? Anybody? Thank you. Good. I see that hand. Um, I think of that. The ark is best described in Exodus 25. You don't have to look there, but I'm going to tell you a couple of things about the ark that are described in Exodus 25. First, uh, the ark is a symbol of the God of Israel. It would be the symbol of the God of Israel. And the ark in Exodus 25 is explained as being this big, ornate, wooden, uh, golden-plated box, right? It's huge. And under it, on the bottom of it, there are four golden rings like this, okay? And you would take two acacia wood poles and you would run, run them under the ark through those rings and then it would be carried up on the shoulders of four men when it was moved from point A to point B, okay? So big box, four rings, two poles, put it on the shoulders, carry it before the people of Israel. So the ark would go and then the people would come 
behind. Now, there are three things in the ark. Uh, by the way, this is about as deep a sermon today. You're going to get some, like, next-level information. So um, if, you, if your brain is tired, take a little nap. I'll, I'll tap, you know, and say, hey, wake up. This is important. This is important. I think we even have a slide for this one. There were three things in the ark that were critical to the life uh, and the history of Israel. In the ark were the stone tablets. Remember Moses etched in the stone the Ten Commandments? Um, at first, actually, God etched the Ten Commandments, and then Moses body slammed them, and God let him write them again because God understands that Moses was angry at the people. So in the ark, there are the Ten uh, Commandments on stone tablets. The second thing that's in the ark is manna. Now, manna was the bread that God fed the people of Israel with uh, while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Manna, there was a trick to manna. On Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you got one day's manna. On, actually, on Friday, you got two days' manna because you would take Saturday off. That was the Sabbath day, and even God takes a day off, and he wasn't going to rain manna on Saturdays. So five days, you got one portion. One day, you got two portions, and one day, you got no portions. So every day, the people were fed. If you tried to hold the manna, if you grew up with food insecurity, right? And you said, well, I'm going to go ahead and get three days worth in case I need a snack at midnight tonight, you know? You would literally get to that point and it would be moldy. God only gave enough manna for the one day and he let the manna roll over on Saturday so it didn't go bad, right? The third thing that's in the ark, so there's preserved manna. It's the only manna that never molded. The only manna in this little glass jar that didn't go bad and get maggots in it. Every other time, after one day or 48 hours, it would always get maggots in it. The third thing in there was Aaron's staff. Now, Aaron's staff, it wasn't Moses' staff that when they were dealing with Pharaoh and Israel trying to get the people free, uh, it wasn't Moses' staff that was sort of directing. It was always Aaron's staff. I didn't realize that. I was reading it this week. So do you remember, you might not remember this episode. There's an episode before God starts doing all the plagues against Egypt where uh, Moses and Aaron are talking to Pharaoh. And Moses says, let my people, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then Moses takes Aaron's staff and throws it down. And do you remember? It becomes a snake. And then the magicians of the Pharaoh said, we can do that too. So they throw their staffs down and it becomes a snake. And then Aaron's staff eats the magician's staff. So that's kind of an odd moment. The next thing that happens, Aaron's staff takes the Nile River and turns it all to blood. It's Aaron's staff, not Moses. And the whole time that they're leading the people out, it's always Aaron's staff that's going before the people. So in the ark, you have three items. The first one is a reminder that God speaks. God speaks. That's a powerful truth for our lives. God talks. He speaks to us and for us. The second thing, the manna, is a reminder that God provides I can feel sometimes like God's forgotten me and he's not going to provide. The ark was a reminder that God speaks and God provides. The third thing in the ark was a reminder that God saves. It was through Aaron's staff that God led the people out of slavery and into freedom and eventually into the promised land. So the ark was not the presence of God. God is omnipotent. He can't be boxed in. The ark was the reminder that God speaks, provides, and saves. 
Now that was powerful uh, for those people. It didn't save them. It reminded them of God's salvation. It's a lot like baptism and communion. As a church, we celebrate two ordinances, two reminders. Uh, So in a little bit, we'll receive communion. That communion is not going to save you. God is not literally in the bread. But it's a reminder. The bread and the fruit of the vine. We're going to have baptism on Palm Sunday. Those are reminders that God speaks, provides, and saves. That's powerful. That's incredible. And that's what the ark was. That reminder that God speaks, provides, and saves. And so Exodus 25 talks about how to carry it, how to lift it, all of those things. And the biggest thing that comes from Exodus 25 is do not touch it. Do not touch it. Like God literally positioned it with gold so strong that it would sit here on the ground and the poles slide them through. There was no reason ever to touch the ark of God. So now let's look at three and four. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. First of all, do you ever like you're watching something and you're like, oh, that's going to be trouble. Oh, that's not good. First of all, when you see the word new like a yellow light should begin to go off, okay? Like yellow light, new, mm, cart. That's a really bad word. Like now the yellow light is flashing. And then look at the next thing. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving. When you see the word driving the cart, like, I mean, red lights, Siren, everything, alarm, not good. This is not good. It seemed efficient and God honoring. They're driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. There's a new cart. Uh, it's, this is not a good situation. It seems God honoring, but it's actually not good at all. And here's the problem. I think we have a slide for this, Scott. The wrong thing done with the right motives is still the wrong thing. The wrong thing, done, a sinful, miss-the-mark kind of thing done with the right heart is still wrong. This is the person who cheats on their taxes and says, it's okay, I'm going to tithe a little extra at church. The wrong thing done with the right heart is still the wrong thing. This is the person who shares a prayer request. I have fam- I'm from the South. In the South, we don't do conflict. We do passive-aggressive conflict. And in passive-aggressive conflict, I don't confront you. I talk about you behind your back. And the good Christian people in the South don't just talk about you behind their back. They share prayer requests. And so here's how that works. Like, I may have a problem with Mark, but I would never come tell Mark I have an issue with him. I would say, hey, Carson, man, we got to pray for Mark. Let me tell you what's going on in his life, right? And so that's what we're talking about. It might be on some level done with a right heart. You might actually want to be praying for Mark. The problem is we're doing a sinful wrong thing by gossiping. Here, and so in this story, that's, we don't drive God. We can't drive uh, God. Jesus will not be our co-pilot. God cannot be steered. God cannot be steered. Jesus is Lord of all, or he is Lord, not Lord at all. Or is the Carrie Underwood song, the prophet Carrie Underwood, so correctly, uh, incorrectly said when she's saying, Jesus, take the wheel? Jesus doesn't sit in the passenger seat and reach over and grab the steering wheel. To be a follower of Jesus means that Jesus is sitting 
in the driver's seat and we get to sit in the passenger seat. He drives or he's not in the car. It doesn't work with sort of Jesus in the passenger seat uh, while we just take a leisurely stroll. And these guys have put Jesus, they put God in the passenger seat. Exodus 25 told them, they knew what Exodus 25 said. It said, this is how you move this ark, and they've, they have, uh, they're doing the wrong thing with a right heart. Let's read verses 5 through 7. So David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Just think, thousands of people coming up, marching toward Jerusalem with uh, the cart carrying the ark of God. They were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. A heck of a... Sounds like every elementary school concert I've ever been to, right? And you remember the castanets, those little wooden castanets we had in elementary school? Those were great. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. Here's one of the craziest verses in the Bible. I'll go ahead and tell you it's crazy. Uh, If you would like to talk about it after church, I'll be sitting right there. We can talk for 10 minutes after worship for a little bit. And if it takes longer than that, we can get coffee. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Beware the God. I think we even have a slide right here. Beware the God. This is a crazy moment in the Bible. I have a ton of questions. Let me just say, first of all, sometimes the Bible leaves us with more questions than it does answers. Right? Sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, what's going on there? And that's okay. It doesn't mean we're dum-dums or we have a lack of faith or it doesn't mean any of that. Sometimes we have more questions than answers. We don't ever have to apologize for the Bible. We don't have to edit the Bible. We don't have to take out, like Thomas Jefferson, the parts of the Bible we don't like and leave the parts that we do like. We don't have to do that. We don't edit. We can choose to trust the God of Uzzah, who is also the God of David. Like we all want the God of David, but to get the God of David, sometimes we're going to get the God of Uzzah. And so that can be difficult. Story is the ox stumbles, the ark begins to slip. The ark starts slipping. Uzzah uh, has been put in a position in this moment that he should have never been in. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, don't be deceived. God will never be mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will eventually reap. Seed was put in the ground by putting this ark on a cart, and Uzzah sadly reaps the consequence of that. If we, if we put seeds of righteousness and faith in the ground, we will eventually see a harvest of righteousness and faith. If we put seeds of sin, just small, little, disobedient, unfaithful seeds of sin in the ground, we will eventually reap a harvest of sin. And that's what happens to Uzzah. Here's the truth. I know we have a slide for this. Sin will always take us farther. And a lot of you have heard this. Sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intend to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. Nobody ever starts out wanting to end up at the place of sin where they find themselves. We always think, it's just going to be between, it's just me, it's just one time, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, not a big deal. Sin will take us farther than we ever intended to go. It will, call, it will keep us longer than we ever intended to stay. And it will cost us more than we ever intended to pay. Uzzah touched it. And in that moment, efficiency and common sense became greater than reverence and obedience. 
Efficiency and common sense in his heart were more important than reverence and obedience. And in our lives and in his, whenever that happens, whenever efficiency and common sense become more important than reverence and obedience, death always occurs. Sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. I didn't put the story in my notes. I'm hesitant to tell it, but I want to make sure that as your pastor, I give you a correct beware the God context of what we're talking about here. About 12 years ago, I believe I watched God let someone be taken out by the consequence of their sin. They chose efficiency and common sense over reverence and obedience. And she was making light of things. She was boxing God in and making light of things that were very holy and profound. And very quickly, she went away and ceased to exist on earth. I I would never say God killed someone. That sounds horrible. I even, like, am probably going to edit this out of the podcast. But I think God said, there's a consequence to making light of things that are holy and boxing me in. If you want to do that, like, she was a believer, so I believe her last breath on earth was her first breath in heaven. But I think that God was not going to let his name be belittled and dragged through the mud. And that moment terrified me. I, I, don't, I don't share that story. I don't think I've shared that story once ever as a pastor. I hesitate to even say that, you know? But God's name and God's glory are more important than our comfort and common sense. And so whenever we put common sense and efficiency ahead of reverence and obedience, death, fast or slow, always eventually occurs, sometimes not literally, often spiritually. I've known people who I really genuinely believe God was calling them to be pastors, church planters, missionaries, and they said no, and I watched the slow death of their soul. Because God put his hand on something and said, here, here, trust me, follow me. And they said, no, I will take grace in heaven. And God said, if that's the way you want it, then I will let you have it. And that is a slow and sad death. The problem is we all do this. Romans 8.23, all ascend and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the consequence, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all do this. We all do this. And we need Jesus uh, and that's why he died for our sin. And Jesus resurrects dead things. So if we look and we say, oh, God put his hand on that five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I said, no, let me, let me help you understand that death does not get the final word for the children of God. There is resurrection, victory, and power. Now, verse 8, let's pick back up. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. I mean, he watches this guy who he knew die right there, touch the ark. That seems unfair. David's mad. And uh, so he's angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So he's angry at God. He's afraid, but he's not scared. He's revering. That word in the Hebrew means revering. He's uh, worshipful on a sense because God is so great and he's even asking God how am I going to bring the ark up so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite Uzzah dies David's angry he's questioning God and ultimately he hits pause 
I don't like where this movie is going. He hits pause. We've all been there. Where we're like, I don't like this. Some of you saw the Joker in the fall or winter or whatever that came out. And some of you told me, you're like, I walked out of there. I could not keep on. I didn't like where that was going. My mind and emotions couldn't handle that. So I just walked out. That's what David said. He's like, I'm living this thing right now. And I don't like where this is going. I'm hitting pause. And he takes the ark and he puts it in a guy's barn. And he says, I'm going to come back to that sometime. But I'm not ready to deal with that right now. Beware the God. So he's questioning, he's angry, he's, uh, he's worshipfully afraid, but he never gets sloppy and disobedient and arrogant and bossy, and he's never trying to drive or steer God. See, here's the problem with Uzzah. Uzzah made, in that moment, Uzzah made God small, but David makes God big. Uzzah's sin was he made God small, and the thing that David did that was beautiful, that this episode is part of David being a man after God's own heart, questioning, angry, uh, afraid of God, but he never makes God small. When I was uh, 20, my brother was 16, we were in our church vans going to youth camp. I was going to be a counselor, my brother was a student. We were going to Fontana Village in North Carolina. It's on that part of North Carolina where North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia all meet. Uh, and it's really mountainous. mountainous. It's hard to get to. Really windy roads. If you have any level of car sickness, you don't want to be in the back of the church van in that moment. And our, the van I'm in is uh, first in line. And the one my brother is on is last in line. And we get there. And we're getting off the van. And we've been in the vans for hours. So everybody's stretching and running around like a bunch of uh, teenagers. And we're trying to manage. Well, the van my brother's on gets there. It doesn't get there. We're like, well, that's weird. This is for everybody has a cell phone. We're in the middle of Appalachia, so it wouldn't have worked if everybody did, right? And so eventually someone goes back up the mountain in the other church van to find them and, uh, and finds the van. And on the way down the mountain, these windy roads, the brakes went out on their church van. And the driver very uh, astutely and uh, ably steers the van into a tree. And one wheel of the van is hanging off the mountain. And all of the kids, there's a trailer on the back, they can't open the back door of the van. So all the kids are climbing up through the passenger seat and getting off the van. Everyone was safe and okay. The van was bunged up a little bit, but everyone was okay. Can I tell you, when those 15 on that van got down to camp, here was the, here was the takeaway. Whew. God must want to do something this week. And I mean, usually you walk into the first night of camp and everybody, like all the teenage boys are trying to find a girlfriend and you're just like trying to, everybody's spraying on their axe body spray, getting ready to go. That night, everybody is ready to hear from God because we were like one quarter of our group could have just gotten wiped out. We were ready to hear from God. God in that moment was not someone small we needed to box in and manage. He was big and needed to be worshiped. And that's what happened with David in this moment. There are two options. I think we have a slide for this, Scott. There are two worldviews we can take. We can make God small. This is the way of religion. If I receive communion, I'm going to be good with God for a week. If I go to church, it's all good. God's going to be fine with me. If I pray, I can go live like hell, but I pray, so it's all good. That's religion. That's making God small. The other option is to make God big. This is worship. Worship literally means just to make God big. And it was easy for David to worship God in this moment because he'd seen God kill a lion, a bear, and a Goliath. 
It's easy to let God be big. Worship is a response to all God is and all God is done. It's remembering. Remember what was in the ark? Manna, commandments, and the staff? Worship is remembering that God speaks, provides, and saves. When we come up to God's presence and we remember, oh man, God speaks, he provides, and he saves, our natural response ought to be worship. And so in church we can sing loud when we have music and when we come for communion that's profound when we open the word of God we come ready to hear and outside of here we can love and live big and everything can be an act of worship David hits pause to figure this out am I going to make God small or big verse 11 and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. They come and they're like, hey, you remember when you put that thing in the barn? That barn's doing real nice. And David says, I've got to get some of that. And so he's going to come up with a plan. Verse, uh, so David went out and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who, watch the verb, not drove the, not drove the ark, when those who bore the ark, now they're doing it the right way, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. It's a, a, a white, pure, clean, uh, almost like an undergarment that a priest would wear when he was sacrificing before the Lord. Now understand, David's not a priest. David's a king. His worship of the Lord allowed his role and his influence and his calling to expand. He made God big and God expanded his influence and ministry. So David dances before the Lord with all his might wearing a linen ephod. And the Lord, or in David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David says, I need God with me. It makes me think of Narnia where the beaver is talking with one of the kids and the kid says, oh, well, is he safe? Is he a tame lion? Referring to Aslan who represents Jesus. And Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, 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 no. He is not tame, but he is good. And that's the God that David met that day. And so they go out and they bear the ark. Now they've not got it on a cart. No technology needed. It can't slip and stumble. Four strong men are carrying the ark as they were supposed to. They're bearing the ark. Uh, the, and so if the wrong thing with the right heart is sinful and wrong, here's another slide I believe. The right thing with the right heart always honors God. It's always the right time to do the right thing. The right thing done with the right heart always honors God. Verse 14 said he danced with all his might. He's not going through the motions. It's okay to amen in church. All right? Let me just, I know we're New Englanders, and some of you come from very puritanical sort of, we are from Puritan stock, and we don't do that in church, right? And some of you uh, grew up Catholic, and all you got to do is get the sit, kneel, uh, squat, all the motions and all of that. Like, you get that, but we don't talk. Listen, some of us grew up in a tradition where you said amen in church, and if that's how you worship, that's great. If you want to amen, fantastic. Some Sundays we have worship, and some of you grew up in traditions where you kind of raise your hands like this, like surrender, or you raise your hand like this, like, God, come in here and give me a big hug, Lord. If that's how you grew up, look, some of, most of us grew up where it's like this, right? That's okay. Worship Jesus with all you got like this. But if you grew up like this, that's great too. Worship God with all your might and hold nothing back out of fear of other people. That's what David's doing in his little white linen 
uh, ephod. It's okay and biblical to amen, sing loud, raise hands, worship if it's making God big and not us big. Now, we've been in church where someone is making themselves big, and we're afraid of that. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. If you're making God big, don't worry about what anybody else thinks. If you're making yourself big, repent of that immediately. Now, let's, um, let's bring this story into the barn. Let's finish this chapter, if we might, starting in verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord's coming into the city of David, it's a huge celebration. We just watched the new Aladdin the other day. Imagine, like, that's essentially what we got here. The ark and then the Prince Ali theme song. And there's, you got the elephants and they got the monkeys. You know, remember the song, big celebration. They're coming in every six steps. David is making a sacrifice to God. The ark of the Lord's coming in the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Again, this is a priest's job, not a king's, but God has expanded his calling and role and influence. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people. Again, the priest's role. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. All those animals that were sacrificed every six steps become dinner. When we receive communion in a moment, remember that all of that happens because of Jesus. Because he gave everything, we all who are believers get to feast and celebrate Jesus. It doesn't make us right with God. It's a reminder that God gave everything, his son, everything so that we could be part of his family. Verse 20, but David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. In other words, worshipers see worshipers. Cynics. Michael sees something gross in David because that's the condition of her heart. The worshipers, those with pure hearts before the Lord, regardless of their status, they became worshipers. In verse 23, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Michael's despising, David is dancing, worshiping, offering, and ministering. It is impossible to scorn, scoff, Question, despise, cross our arms, hold anything back, and worship God at the same time. It's impossible. It's impossible to scorn, scoff, question, cross our arms, and hold anything back. And I don't mean like it's wrong to cross your arms in church. I'm not making up some silly, stupid commandment, right? I'm saying if our heart's posture is like, man, look at these guys. Look at that. Look at her. If that's, it's impossible to do that 
and hold back and at the same time worship and minister and meet God. David says three things to her. One, he says, I was dancing before the Lord. This was not for you, the servant girls, or anybody else. This was before the Lord. I dance. This would be us saying, I dance for Jesus, not you. I worship for Jesus, not you. I receive communion for Jesus, not you. I give an offering for Jesus, not you. I, I come to know the Bible for Jesus, not you. I'm putting sin to death for Jesus, not you. I'm sold out, hold nothing back for Jesus, not for anyone else. That's what he says first. Second thing he says, and I will become more contemptible before the Lord. Before God, I'll get, you think I embarrass myself today? I'm going to embarrass myself even more before God. You thought I was jumping high today. Wait till my legs get strong. I'm going to jump as high as is possibly uh, possible for the glory of the Lord. I will become more contemptible, more small, he says, more insignificant, more of little account. I will become more insignificant before God. And then he says the third thing. He says, and I will be abased in your eyes too. That word abased and the word contemptible are almost the same word. Almost the same word. He says, I'll become small of no account to God. And in that, as that happens, I will also become small and of no account to you. And I don't care. I don't care. I think we have a slide for this. Worship forces us to decide if we will be big before people. And in doing that, we would therefore be big before God. And in doing that, God becomes small. If people are big and we want in our minds and we want to be big before people as followers of Jesus, if we come big before God, then God becomes very small. God and you can't be big at the same time. And so David says, I'll become small before God and I'll become small before you because I'm going to make God big. So the converse is true as well. If we become small before God, then we will become small before people. But God will be big. So when you walk out of here and I walk out of here today, we have a decision to make. Will people be big? And because people are big, we want to be big. If that is the posture of our life, then God will have to be small. And like Uzzah, we will be driving him, trying to make him the co-pilot of our life. That's one option. The other option, and that one always ends in death. I'm going to sort of ask a steering. I'm not even going to like let you decide. I'm going to decide for you, right? The other option is you can be small and in becoming and holding nothing back and saying, I can dance higher, I can scream louder, I can praise God more, I can give more of my heart away. I thought I was giving God everything. Turns out I was just giving him 60%. But by God's grace, by a year from now, he's going to have 70%. And one day, he's going to have as much of me as is absolutely possible. When you do that and you make yourself small, people will stop esteeming you, but God will be big. The sad part is, if we want to be big, God will be small. The beautiful part, the gospel is, if we will become small, God will become so big and beautiful. It's the truth of John 3, 30, where John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he may increase. It's the truth of 1 Peter 5, 6 that says, humble yourself there before the Lord, and in due time he will lift you up. 
Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's the truth of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. It's Philippians 2.5-11, which is one of my wife's favorite passages in the whole Bible. But it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being uh, in in nature, equal with God, emptied himself, humbled himself, and became obedient. He took the form of a man, became obedient, even to death, even death on a cross. Beware the God. Beware the God. God would have us all, including and especially me, become more undignified and worship and surrendered. How can uh, we ignore Michael in our life? Like there's an inner Michael in every one of us. An inner looking at somebody else, not thinking about our heart, looking at someone else, criticizing, wondering where they're, how much hard they've surrendered, questioning motives. We all have an inner Michael we need to repent of and like put to death. Something in Michael died that way, that day, by the way. She never had another kid. Their family line died that, with her that day. We all have an Uzzah, an inner Uzzah, who wants to drive God. God, bless this thing in my life. I'm going to do this and ask you to bless it rather than God. How do you want to lead me? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do with my life, God? I'm here. I'm surrendered. Surrender. We need to repent of our inner Uzzah. And we need to be willing to be undignified like David in response to Jesus. There's a great uh, little tiny Christian book. If you, if you looked at the 50 greatest books in the history of Christianity... This one would certainly be in the top 50. It's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. This is not my notes. Um, always dangerous. Uh, and the, the idea was a guy named Brother Lawrence, who lived hundreds of years ago and, uh, and worked in a, in a monastery, decided that everything he did, he was going to do completely for the glory of God. So if he was washing the dishes, it was for the glory of God. And he literally tried to envision himself uh, and Jesus right there with him as he washed the dishes. If he was mopping the floor, he envisioned that Jesus was with him, practicing the presence of God in everything. And in that, he made himself small and God became very big. And he writes in the book and he says, there were minutes at first, and then those minutes became hours. Eventually, he felt like God was always with him and there was no task where God wasn't perfectly present with him. That is the beauty of the gospel. The ark of the Lord that says God speaks, God provides, God saves. On some level, Christians, the Holy Spirit now lives in us, and God's presence is with us. And we are guaranteed all of the blessings and privileges, but the question is, will we make God small so that we and people will be big, or we make God big, which will force us and people's opinions of us to be small? And let me pray for us.